Good morning, church, and welcome. So good to be with y'all today. I'm looking at Miss Christine in the house. Hello. So happy you're joining us today. That's exciting. Also, uh, we forgot to mention this last week, but Camille Reasonover on February 9th just turned 85. So really happy uh, to have her with us and celebrate her life as well. Um, one quick announcement. We do have the new devotional things, uh, for lack of a better word, things uh, up here and in the back if, if y'all are interested in picking one of those up. But we're so glad that you're here today. And any visitors joining us, thank you so much for being here. We would love to get to know you guys and love your family. So if you have any questions about Fourth, we would love to talk with you. Whenever I lived in Searcy, Arkansas, I would say that, okay, some love for Searcy. Um, whenever I lived in Searcy, I lived in what I would call a Chick-fil-A town. What I mean by that is if you were to look up, I don't know what it is now, but I think back whenever we lived there, if you were to look up Chick-fil-A on TripAdvisor or uh, Google Reviews, it would be like the most popular and highest rated restaurant in the area, which means you know you're eating good. Um, but it was something where it felt like there was kind of like a cult following. Like there were so many people that ate there all the time. And I guess that's kind of true everywhere, right? But while I was living there, there became a disturbance in the force because I kept hearing these rumblings of a new competitor. Popeyes started coming out with their new chicken sandwich. And I kept getting hit with wave after wave after wave of people recommending it to me. And I kept seeing the marketing of it everywhere. And it got to the point where it was so in my head and in my thoughts that any time that my stomach started rumbling, I was starting to have dreams of Popeyes. And so after enough of a craving, flirting with the idea enough, I end up going to Popeyes and I get their new chicken sandwich. And let me just say, it was love at first bite. It was so good. It was like I had this out-of-body experience. I was like, what is happening to me? It was just this monumental moment. And from that point on, <laughs> any time where there were lunch plans that got canceled with somebody else, I'd be like, oh, that's fine, I'll just go to Popeyes. Or any time I was scheduling a meeting, I would suggest, hey, why don't we just go to Popeyes? Or whenever Abby was out of town and she's like, eat healthy, and I'm like, okay, I'm going to Popeyes. Um, and I, it kind of became like a little bit of a drug for me. I became obsessed with it and ate it so much. And what started to curve or curb that, um, I would say borderline addiction to Popeyes was moving here and there's really not one anywhere around here. So thank goodness, praise God, that uh, that was something that's now in my past. But now Hattie B's moved in two minutes from my house. So now I'm like, get behind me, Satan because I have this temptation coming up again. But though this story isn't super serious, it does demonstrate our propensity as human beings to flirt with, get enticed by an idea, a thing, maybe a person, and it ultimately leads to our full-blown immersion and devotion to that thing. It's like that slippery slope idea that normally was always used for a small theological disagreement that would end up leading you to being a murderer or something, which a lot of those arguments are kind of ridiculous, but the concept of a slippery slope is very true. Once we flirt with something and start practicing with something, it's easy to lead to devotion to that thing. 
whether that's the first sip of alcohol that ultimately leads to alcoholism, or that first placed bet that leads to a gambling addiction, or the temptation of greed that once you have some nice things, you want all the nice things, or downloading apps that are addictive in nature, thinking, oh, I can control myself, only to check the screen time report, and you're like, I'm spending how much time on that app? Or it could be flirting with a person that leads into an ongoing affair. There are many, many different kinds of ways that this takes shape. It is easy to marvel at something, start flirting with that thing, get involved with it to the end of total addiction or infatuation or devotion to something that you thought that you would never be devoted to. And though that, um, that can come from a lot of different ways, it could be in your own life you feel this sense of dissatisfaction like you're missing something in life, you're thinking maybe the grass is greener, maybe it's simply because we've lost sight of Jesus and forgot our first love, but our world wants us to drift. Our world wants us to drink the Kool-Aid, to give into our desires to do whatever we want. There's no harm in that. Why deprive yourself? But from what we're reading in Revelation today, church, we need to be sober-minded because what seems like harmless flirting can lead to our ultimate destruction. If you would, turn with me to Romans, not Romans, just kidding, we're not in Romans, we're in a series on Revelation. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 17. That's where we're gonna begin today. Last week we talked about the unholy trinity of Revelation, which is the dragon and the two beasts. And we identified those as Satan, the beast of the sea represents the empire and its rulers, And the false prophet is the beast coming out of the earth that points people to the empire. And the unholy trinity is trying to capture the allegiance of the people of God, but their strategy continues in chapter 17 and 18 in the form of Babylon. So let's read in verse one. It says, one of the seven angels who had poured out the seven bowls came over and spoke to me. Come with me, he said, and I will show you the judgment that is going to come on the great prostitute who rules over many waters. The kings of the world have committed adultery with her. And the people who belong to this world have been made drunk by the wine of her immorality. So the angel took me in the spirit into the wilderness. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that had seven heads and ten horns. And blasphemies against God were written all over it. The woman wore purple and scarlet clothing and beautiful jewelry made of gold and precious gems and pearls. In her hand, she held a gold goblet full of obscenities and the impurities of her immorality. A mysterious name was written on her forehead, Babylon the Great, mother of all prostitutes and obscenities in the world. I could see that she was drunk, drunk with the blood of God's holy people who were witnesses for Jesus. I stared at her in complete amazement. Why are you so amazed, the angel asked. I will tell you the mystery of this woman and of the beast with seven heads and 10 horns on which she sits. The beast you saw was once alive but isn't now and yet will soon come up out of the bottomless pit and go to eternal destruction. And the people who belong to this world whose names were not written in the book of life before the world was made will be amazed at the reappearance of the beast who had died. All right, so let's pause here and and break this down a little bit. There are two main characters that we need to talk about from this section. First, John gets this vision. 
of a prostitute named Babylon ruling over many waters, which later in the chapter, the ruling over many waters is metaphorically talking about all of humanity. She is wearing purple and scarlet clothing and beautiful jewelry symbolizing her luxury and the opulence that she partakes in. And it's also attire that prostitutes would have worn of the day. She's portrayed as having a golden goblet full of immorality and has seduced the rulers of this world to partake in her immorality and luxury, which that comes from Jeremiah chapter 51, as does some of the rest of this chapter and the next chapter. In Jeremiah 51, there is this plea for Israel to flee from Babylon and not be destroyed with her which cities are oftentimes depicted in the feminine, both in scripture and in ancient literature. And it says, uh, Babylon made the whole earth drunk from her wine and caused them to go mad. That's from Jeremiah 51. And in this instance in Revelation, Babylon causes others, other nations, other kingdoms, other kings to get drunk with immorality. But she herself is getting drunk on the blood of God's people. That is a very grotesque image, isn't it? But doesn't that grip you so much more? Doesn't the weight and seriousness of this hit you more than just saying a basic fact like Rome is bad? There is something about apocalyptic literature that helps us connect with the truth in a way that simply stating the facts can't do. So Babylon is the first main character in this chapter. The second character we are exposed to here is a scarlet beast that Babylon is riding upon. And this beast matches almost all of the description of the beast coming out of the sea in chapter 13. And like we said last week, it's most likely uh, being referenced, um, it's referencing Rome and the kings of Rome, the emperors of Rome. And this week it's very similar. And I can't tell you how many different viewpoints there are on what the beast is and what it represents. I mean, there are countless, but I think that's most likely what it's referring to. And um, really, the beast is a trope for empire or empires on the whole. And in this chapter, it's basically the same, but it's a little harder to follow, and you'll kind of see why. Um, so the rest of this chapter brings explanation to what I just read. So verse 9, it says, This calls for a mind with understanding. The seven heads of the beast represent the seven hills where the woman rules. They also represent seven kings. Okay, so dual meaning there. Five kings have already fallen, the sixth now reigns, and the seventh is yet to come, but his reign will be brief. The scarlet beast that was but is no longer is the eighth king. He is like the other seven, and he too is headed for destruction. The ten horns of the beast are ten kings who have not yet risen to power. They will be appointed to their kingdoms for one brief moment to reign with the beast. They will all agree to give him their power and authority. All right, so does that all make sense? Good, we're moving on. Um, no, just kidding. Obviously, this is really hard to try to wrap your mind around what this is talking about. But the seven heads of the beast here are representing, it says, the seven hills where the woman rules, which that is definitely a reference to the city of Rome because Rome is known as the city of seven hills. But the seven heads also represent the seven kings. So this kind of matches what we were talking about with the beast of the sea last week. Um, there's so much layering into apocalyptic literature that things can mean different things and it can kind of get confusing. But that being said, if the seven hills are representing the seven hills of Rome, which I very much so think they are, it's really significant 
for us to be able to identify the nature of Babylon here as well. So if we were to look at some ancient coins during the time of Rome, you might find some that look like this. And uh, for y'all on the right-hand side, you have this picture of the Roman goddess Roma. And she is like the ideal and a, a portrait of Rome and all of Roman glory. And she is sitting upon the seven hills of Rome. And on her, her left hand, she's holding a short sword, which is symbolizing the military might of Rome. And it's really hard to see, but on the right-hand side, there is an image of the river god Tiber, which that could be a reference to the many waters that we're reading about here in Revelation. And at the bottom left, uh, it's kind of hard to see, but there is a wolf that is feeding Ramus and Remulus, which is like the origin myth of the city of Rome. But the Latin word for she-wolf was also a derogatory term used in Roman culture to describe a prostitute. So what I think is happening here is I think John is taking this well-known image of Roman glory, some allusions to Babylon from the Old Testament and the anthropomorphized version of Babylon, and other Old Testament themes like Lady Folly from Proverbs, which she was a trope for foolishness that was contrasted with Lady Wisdom. And he forms it all into this all-encompassing, symbolic, promiscuous figure in Revelation called Babylon. Babylon became for Jews oppression of God's people and idolatry. This depiction of Babylon represents a world power that entices humanity to fall prey to her immorality and the power that she can provide. But really, this is a timeless trope. Babylon in John's day was Rome, but we see Babylon all over the place. So that's more about Babylon. We're gonna go back to the beast for a second. So not only do the heads of the beast represent the city of Rome and the, the empire, but also the emperors, the kings. When dual meanings pop up like this, I just kinda say, apocalyptic literature is gonna apocalyptic literature. This genre packs a lot of substance in very few words. So of these seven kings, there's a reference to five from the past, which I think is the succession of emperors. I don't think people can really line up very neatly like who these five are uh, referencing. The sixth one is the active ruler. The seventh one is one to come that will only have a brief period of power. And then it says the scarlet beast itself is the eighth king, but is no longer and is still yet to come and ultimately head to destruction. I think, uh, again, from what we talked about last week, and a lot of scholars talk about this, is this myth of Nero being revived and coming back again. And some of that, uh, there's something in the myth of Nero that compares him to a purple dragon, too. So that could be some of what's happening here. But I don't know. <laughs> I really have no idea exactly what this is talking about. And uh, the horns here, it says it represents 10 kings not yet in power but they will have different appointed kingdoms and that could be within the subdivision of Rome or it could be separate things, but in either way, they are in alliance with the beast. So the ending here is a little bit of a plot twist. The beast that Babylon rides upon turns on her and kills her in very graphic fashion. And I will not read that today, but the text portrays God's purposes behind this that through the kings and kingdoms that hate Babylon, they will ultimately destroy her. 
How often do we see nations or empires rise to prominence only to be destroyed from within themselves or from outside kingdoms? But the fate of Babylon is sealed. Babylon will ultimately be destroyed by heaven and the army of the Lamb. In chapter 18, we read of the swift, and I'm talking swift and immediate judgment from God towards Babylon for the sake of his people who have been killed because of her bloodthirsty nature against those who belong to the bride of Christ, the new Jerusalem. Babylon is going to be entirely destroyed, completely eradicated by God, which that fact would have served as a huge encouragement to the ones who were having to choose between do I give up my life for Jesus or do I give in to the luxury and the power of Rome? But we need to heed the warning in these chapters, church. Though in John's day, Babylon represented the city of Rome and the people devoted to Rome and, and all of its ideals, the trope of Babylon is truly timeless. It is representative of the empires of this world, but also the idolatry and the immorality that is present within them. As Scott McKnight says in Revelation for the rest of us, each century has its Babylons. Each country has its Babylons. Each state and city, and yes, church institutions and churches has the potential to release the powers of Babylon. That is sobering, but reality. This is why the angel speaking with John is greatly concerned by John marveling at Babylon. Because the people of this world are the ones who are amazed with her and all the luxury and the power that she can provide. And this infatuation, this flirting with this idea leads to adultery with her, leads to devotion to her and away from God. Snuggling up to Babylon is dangerous, church. Listen to some of the language that's used from chapter 18 to describe her. She is a home for demons, a hideout for every foul spirit. Her sins are piled as high as heaven. Babylon is not something to flirt with. And for the sake of our identification, what are these characteristics of Babylon that we read in these chapters? The first one is passionate immorality. The Greek word for immorality here is porneia. And that means illicit sexual activities where we get the English word pornography. And back in the time of Rome, pornography today in today's culture is everywhere, but it's more of a hidden lifestyle. In Rome, it was written on the walls. It was in people's houses. It was really hard to escape, but it was much more public. Also extravagant luxury, loving all of the fancy things, that's what Babylon's described as loving all the fancy things, eating the most choice foods, wearing all the designer stuff while ignoring the poor. Also exploitative economics. Merchants were getting massively rich from trading with Babylon, and that included human trading, slave trading going on. Babylon's also arrogant. She boasts in herself and that she doesn't need anything. She's vainglorious. She calls herself queen on her throne and adorns herself with all of this wealth and status. She's bloodthirsty, killing Christians, killing people. You know, the Pax Romana of Rome, it was not actually peaceful, it was domineering force that made people so afraid to do anything against Rome. 
because Rome would kill them. And Rome marveled in their military victory and power among the nations. And if, if you look at this list, there's a lot that really lines up with the seven deadly sins from the series that we talked about before. But the last one on that list is anti-God. It's very all-encompassing. From killing the people of God to loving all of the opposite of kingdom values. Wes Howardbrook and Anthony Guire write in their commentary Unveiling Empire, Babylon exists wherever socio-political power coalesces into an entity that stands against the worship of Yahweh alone. Whatever entity that is standing in the way of worship of our true God, that is Babylon. And boy, don't we see Babylon everywhere. We see it in every foreign nation, but we also see it in our country. We see it in our cities, and honestly, we see it in ourselves. We are living in Babylon, and we are easily being seduced to her ways. We are surrounded by passionate immorality, as sexuality is the great emphasis of the times, and pornography is just booming. We are living in extreme luxury compared to the rest of the world without little care for the rest of the world. We do everything we can to keep as much money as we can. We boast in ourselves and take pride in the things that Babylon loves for us to. We glorify ourselves and show the best parts of ourselves on social media and care more about maintaining an image than we do about being vulnerable in relationships. We are bloodthirsty, whether that is actual violence in the shootings that we see so often, or simply being angry at a brother or sister going to war against them, pushing them down so that we can be on top. Our culture is screaming Babylon from the rooftops. This is why we need to hear the cry of heaven in Revelation 18, verse four. Then I heard another voice calling from heaven. Come away from her, my people. Do not take part in her sins or you will be punished with her. Come away from Babylon. Like Joseph, whenever Potiphar's wife was seducing him and he just fled, he just ran. We need to do this in a spiritual sense. Come away from her. Do not commit adultery with her. Do not keep drifting towards her. Babylon may sound enticing. It may feel like the grass is greener on the other side, but Babylon leads to destruction. So how do we flee from Babylon? Wouldn't it be great if it was as easy as, yeah, okay, flee from Babylon, I'll just go do that. It's not enough just to flee. If you're just running without direction, you're running aimlessly. It's not that we're just turning from Babylon, we're, we're turning to the Lamb. In chapter 17, as it talks about the alliance of the beast in Babylon, it says this in verse 14, together they will go to war against the Lamb, but the Lamb will defeat them because he is the Lord of all lords and the King of all kings and his called and chosen and faithful ones will be with him. If we are at war against extremely powerful forces that are actively seeking our destruction, our only hope is for a more powerful force to come and defeat them, and his name is Jesus. He is the one that brings the victory because he is the king above all kings. He is the true sovereign. And whenever we follow Jesus, we follow him in victory. Where Babylon loves passionate immorality, we are so passionate about Jesus. Where the world chooses comfort and luxury, we choose generosity and service. 
where the world chooses glorification of self, we choose confession of sin and boast in our weakness. Where the world values domination and getting even, we value turning the other cheek and forgiveness. It's a lot easier said than done, though, right? The way of Jesus is hard, and we're not gonna be able to follow his way perfectly. Whenever we fail, we are still covered by the blood of the Lamb. But the work of the Holy Spirit is to help get the Babylon out of God's people so that we can become his new Jerusalem, his bride. So this morning, let's take one more step because you gotta start small. You can't just snap your fingers and become Jesus overnight, right? Let's just take one more step in the way of Jesus, one more step in partnership with the Holy Spirit to get Babylon out of ourselves and out of this church so that we can help bring freedom to our culture that is drowning in the influence of Babylon. This morning, instead of me giving a list of practical next steps for you, I wanna create some space for God to give you a next step in your life. We're gonna have a time of prayer and response. Worship team, you can go ahead and start coming up. And if you would like prayers for anything going on in your life, um, we're gonna ask that our shepherds and our prayer team go ahead and, and move around the room. But if there's something that you're wanting prayers for, something that you're asking of God to deliver something, if there's something you wanna celebrate, uh, or if you just need encouragement, please do not hesitate to take up this opportunity to, to pray with people that love you and care about you. And maybe if you don't wanna get up, how about you pray with the people right around you? That's something that's very easy to do. Might be a little uncomfortable, but it's good to be uncomfortable sometimes. <laughs> and for everybody in this room, I, I want us to take this opportunity for all of us to respond to God's invitation. We're gonna have some prayer prompts on the screen. And, and I wanna encourage you this morning, um, if you're not gonna be praying with each other, to be praying for Babylon to get out of this church. To get out of this church and get out of the global church. And also to be asking of ourselves, how am I giving in to Babylon's influence? And normally, whenever you ask a question like that, it'll be the first thing that pops into your mind. <laughs> and, and we might try to justify it away and be like, oh, I don't know, I don't know if that's actually what God's wanting me to do, but oftentimes it is. How am I giving in to Babylon's influence and what needs to change in my life? Spend a little bit of time asking God what is one thing? What is one thing I need to do to take away from here and start living for you? To take another step in the way of the Lamb. Lord, <clears throat> this morning, we thank you so much for your steady presence in our life. We thank you so much that you are faithful whenever we are faithless. Thank you for caring about us so deeply that you came and died for our sins and rose from the grave and set free, set us free from the power of sin and death. And Lord, I pray this morning that you help get Babylon out of this church, out of this people. Help us to not value the things of Babylon, but value the things of the kingdom of God. Lord, I pray that on a global scale, may we be a bride that is faithful to you. May we be a global church that is anticipating and excited for your coming of the restoration of all things. Lord, I pray that you be with this nation. You help get Babylon out of this nation. 
Pray that you help get Babylon out of all the nations, Lord, and, and that you come and you heal the world. Lord, we pray, Maranatha, that you come quickly. And in this morning, as we're praying, give us one thing. Just give us one thing or multiple things, but speak to us today. Help us identify the Babylon in our life so that we, with you, can address it. Lord, speak to us this morning. In Jesus' holy name, amen.